from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta. Welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. Please join me in our responsive call to worship. <clears throat> Shout praise to God. Let us praise God with music and great joy. God looks upon us with favor. God rejoices in our loving compassion for others. Thanks be to God who offers us new life. Praise be to Jesus Christ who taught us how to live and calls us to follow him. Friends, let us worship our God. So our scripture lesson today comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, verses 57 through 62. Hear now God's word. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Lord, speak to us in such a way that by the power of your grace and your mercy, we would be changed. That we would see that you are our salvation in new and powerful ways. And that you have called us to follow your son, Jesus the Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. The year was 2004. I was a youth pastor at a church in the western suburbs of Philadelphia. It was graduation season. And this particular congregation's youth group drew from many different school districts, many different high schools, much like 
our church here at First Press Atlanta, where we have kids in all different parts of the city. The same was true for this congregation. And so for a two-week stretch in late May of 2004, I sat on uncomfortable bleachers in overcrowded auditoriums for about a dozen graduation ceremonies. Now, this is not hyperbole. Every once in a while, I may lean into exaggeration, but this right here is the truth. At every single graduation, at every single one of them, all 12, the valedictorian either quoted or referenced or straight up read extended passages from Dr. Seuss's, Oh, the Places You Will Go. All 12, every single speech. It got to the point that we came to the last handful of ceremonies. I played a little game in my own mind as to which section of the book would be highlighted or quoted. Some of the odds on favorites were passages like these. You're off to great places. Today is your day. Your mountain is waiting, so get on your way. Or, you have brains in your head, you have feet in your shoes, you can steer yourself any direction you choose. Or how about this one? You'll be on your way up. You'll be seeing great sights. You'll join the high flyers who soar to high heights. You won't lag behind because you'll have the speed. You'll pass the whole gang and you'll soon take the lead. Wherever you fly, you'll be the best of the best. Wherever you go, you will top all the rest. In hindsight, the fact that the class of 2004 was so heavily connected to, oh, the places you'll go, should not be all that surprising to us. The book was actually first published in the winter of 1990, and so many of these kids would have received it as a gift, maybe in kindergarten, right, or first grade, depending. They'd get it for their sixth or seventh birthday. They would have grown up reading it. They would have heard their teachers read it to them. It was a familiar book. But what is more, this group of graduates came of age in the shadow of 9-11, whose 16th anniversary we remember tomorrow. Those were anxious and fearful times for all of us, but, but imagine if you were an early teen during those days. Some of you were early teens during those days. You might have wondered if there would be a place to go at all. As the towers came crashing down, you might have wondered, what's next? Is the world next? Is there a place that I'm going to get a chance to go? Is there a world I'll get a chance to explore, succeed in, or even conquer? And so, oh, the places you'll go brought a certain measure of optimism in susical, lyrical style to a generation anxious about their future. Now, the challenge with the book, and many commentators have said this in much more articulate ways than I'm about to say it now, but the challenge with the book is that there's a gap, isn't there, between 
the vague and naive optimism that it brings to us and the harsh realities and challenges of the particular places we actually do go. Every generation experiences its own 9-11. Every generation experiences times of great peril and uncertainty. Every generation experiences hardship and anxiety. Every generation faces storms of all kinds. And every generation has been tempted by what David Brooks calls the spell of paradise. Has been tempted by believing that there is such a place with limitless opportunities and maximum fulfillment, that there is a place called perfect. The perfect college or the perfect boyfriend or the perfect girlfriend or the perfect job or the perfect spouse or the perfect home or the perfect neighborhood or the perfect kids or the perfect family or the perfect performance or the perfect projection the world needs to see of me. In other words, the perfect life. And anyone paying attention, of course, knows there is no such thing as the perfect. There is no perfect place we will go. It just doesn't exist. There's no place without disappointment. There's no place without pain. There's no place without struggle. Just this past week, in the midst of university campuses coming to life again, there was an article in the New York Times by Frank Bruni that highlighted the mental health challenges that many college freshmen face, that college students in general face, for which he argues many of whom are unprepared to deal with. Listen to the opening lines of this piece. Quote, Across the country, college freshmen are settling into their new lives and grappling with something that doesn't compete with protests and political correctness for the media's attention, something that no one prepared them for, something that has nothing to do with them being snowflakes and everything to do with being human. They're lonely. In a sea of people, they find themselves adrift. The technology that keeps them connected to parents and high school friends only reminds them of their physical separation from just about everyone they know best. That estrangement can be a gateway to binge drinking and other self-destructive behavior. And it's as likely to derail their ambitions as much as anything else. See, when the, when the high school graduate sits in that auditorium wearing that cap and gown, and they hear Seuss's of oh, the places you'll go in light of this new and fresh season of being a co-ed on a college campus, they think of the fun and the freedom and the football and all the opportunities that they will have at their fingertips. Many of them are not prepared, however, for the places they will go. Beyond those things, Places like loneliness, places like uncertainty, places like addiction or pressures, or the weight of, of trying to fit in like they'd never had before, or the deep and profound questions that weigh them down, like what makes life meaningful or what gives life purpose. Now, no doubt for many, college is an amazing, incredible, formative time. 
But we only know it as those things when we discover in that place both our strengths and our weaknesses. It becomes for us that type of place when we experience both love and loss, when we know both success and failure, when we discover both our freedom, but also when we discover our limitations. That kind of growth, that kind of maturation doesn't come in some naive, vague optimism about the perfect experience or the perfect place, but in the real struggles of life. My point here is that there is often a chasm between this spell of paradise. There's a chasm between the utopia, between the perfect, the naive and vague optimism that tempts us at every turn. There is a chasm between that and the real, hard, challenging places we will actually have to go. The places we have gone or the places we will choose to go today and into the future. This gap, this chasm, can also exist in the spiritual life, I think. It can exist in the Christian life. For the call of Jesus Christ is not a call towards some naive and vague optimism. It's not a call to the perfect. It's not a call to the pain-free. The call of Jesus Christ is not a call towards some utopian spirituality that costs us very little. The call of Christ is not a call to a place where we will have all the answers or where everything will fit neatly, where everything is clean and in order, or a place where life makes perfect sense, where it's perfectly fulfilled. It doesn't call us to places where the storms cannot reach us. That isn't the place Christ calls us to go. So beginning this morning and into the next two weeks, I'm inviting our community of faith to think about the places Jesus Christ actually does call us to go. The roads he calls us to walk. Oh, the places you'll go, he says, are a lot different than we may think. I want us to consider the gap maybe that is in our own life between this, oh, the places you'll go type of naive and vaguely optimistic Christianity, maybe even a cheap and misleading religiosity, the gap between that and an authentic and actual and biblically verified call Christ has spoken to you and to me. What if we were to identify where that gap is in our own life? and begin to move to the places where Christ is calling us to go. To do this, we're going to spend three weeks engaged by six verses. Three weeks, six verses. Luke 9, 57 to 62. Now this particular passage of Scripture that Anne Henley read for us this morning introduces us to three nameless would-be disciples, two of them, the first and the third, on their own on their own, declare their willingness to follow Jesus. They say, hey, we're ready to follow you. For the second would-be disciple, it's a little different. Jesus is the instigator. He invites this one to follow him. All three, however, all three at some level, commit to follow Jesus. 
They all say yes. But the author Luke wants to make it clear to the reader that there is a gap between the places these three think they will go and the places Jesus actually wants to take them. There appears to be a gap between what they expect from Jesus and what Jesus expects from them. What they are to do, where they ought to go, if they do indeed follow him. And so both in next week's sermon and in the sermon on the 24th, we're going to do some digging into this text, into these six verses, to discern for ourselves what this gap may look like in our own lives and what it might look like to heed Christ's call and what those roads that we will walk down in following him actually entail. We're going to get into the weeds concerning what he means when he says very difficult things like foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Or let the dead bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Or no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Alan Culpepper put it this way, the radical demands of discipleship require that every potential disciple, one, consider the cost, two, give Jesus the highest priority in one's life, and three, move ahead without looking back. So that's what we will be getting into in the next couple of weeks. What are the costs we need to consider? What are the, what are the ways in which we need to make Jesus more of a priority in our life. And finally, exploring ways in what it means to press on in the life of faith without turning back. That's ahead of us. For now, I want to close with this. A few verses prior to our text uh, in Luke 9.51, to be exact, we read this. this. This verse actually sets up what we heard read this morning. It says, when the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, that is one way of saying to be lifted up on the cross. When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now, most scholars think that this verse marks a shift in focus for Luke's telling of the gospel. Jesus setting his face. Jesus making a decision. Oh, the places you'll go. Jesus knows where that is. It's Jerusalem. He, Luke frames how the rest of the story will unfold with this simple line that everything now funnels and focuses on Jerusalem. He's going to walk a road, this Jesus, that will ultimately lead to his rejection. He will walk a road that will lead to his betrayal. It will lead to his crucifixion. It will lead him to the only perfect act the world has ever known. His willingness to be obedient to God, even to the point of death on a, on a cross, as the ultimate expression of sacrificial love. And so when Jesus invites these three would-be disciples in Luke 9 to follow him, what he's actually doing is inviting them to follow him on this particular road. This isn't naive and this isn't vague. This road has a destination. Oh, the places you'll go. This road has a focus. He's asking them to accompany him on this journey. It's a journey of suffering. He's asking them to stay close to the betrayed, to the rejected, to the vulnerable, and the, despi the despised, because that's who he is. He's asking them to stay close to him. And that's who he is. That's who he will become as he moves toward Jerusalem. Jerusalem. 
And so when we think about our own Christian life, when we think about what it means to say, yes, I'm a Christian, we have to keep in mind who this Christ actually is and what road he chooses to walk down. Oh, the places he'll go. Friends, we have seen so much suffering. We've seen so many rejected. We've seen so many in vulnerable situations, so many ostracized in these days, so many, so much anxiety, so much fear. And if we're to follow Christ, we must meet him and see him and bless him in the places where he is disguised as the least of these the hungry, the thirsty, the foreigner, the naked, the sick, and the prisoner, as he's disguised in the poor and the oppressed and the brokenhearted. In particular, this morning, even as we gather for worship and we think of these hurricanes of Harvey and Irma, even now as it makes landfall into Florida, taking lives, causing immense amounts of damage, affecting our partners in Cuba and in Haiti, we think about ways in which we're called as a church to walk that Jerusalem road. Oh, the places we'll go. These are the very places we're called to go, to move toward those who suffer, to move toward those in peril and in pain. And one of the ways, a very practical way we can do this in this time, obviously, is to pray, is to pray for God's intervention, for God's protection and providential care. But another way is to give money. And in particular, I'm thinking about the Presbyterian disaster assistance. You know, in a day and age where denominations get a bad rap, and in many ways, rightfully so. But in this way, our denomination gets its spot on right. The Presbyterian Disaster Assistance is one of the flagship ministries of our denomination. They're already on the ground in Texas and Louisiana, and they will be on the ground in Florida. You've seen an email I've sent out to the congregation already about ways that you can give. You can give directly to them, or if you'd like your gift to come to the church, through the church, we will be happy to pass it on. But they are already there. A couple of months ago, in fact, some of them were here for a conference. The senior team that's on the ground now in Houston, they worshiped with us. This is a ministry I'm encouraging all of us to support and to encourage in these days. But there's also going to be a time to go there. Some of you have already asked. I've received a handful of emails already. When can we go to Houston? When can we go to Louisiana? And there will be a time... When the road that we're called to walk, oh, the places will go, where that road will lead to those places, will lead to that suffering. So pay attention and be ready to respond to that call. But there are so many other places, right, besides the ones I've just named in the world, where there is suffering, where there is peril, where there is anxiety. You know people in your own life, even now, who are on that road. And the call of the Christian, I can't say it in any, uh, in, in, in any more plain way, the call of the Christian is to walk that road. Oh, the places we go, it's on that road. And so think of and pray about the people that you're called, even right now, even today, to move toward. Because that's where Jesus is in disguise. 
the people that we're called to move toward, someone who's God put on your heart right now to move toward that person where God is sending you. Oh, the places we'll go. Go there, and you will find our Lord, the Christ, has already gone ahead of us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. the places you'll go, not some naive, vaguely optimistic religiosity, but a very specific road that Jesus has paved, that he now walks on and bids us to come and follow him. Will we go? May the answer be yes, and may his peace along that road be ever with us, a peace which surpasses all understanding. May guard our hearts and our minds in him and live inside of us this day and every day of our life. Amen. Amen.